Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor and Emma Kate Lidbury. She swims, she rides a bike, and she runs. She's been top 10 at Worlds, she's edited magazines and written books, and now she's on the Fast Talk Labs team. Emma Kate Lidbury, our new content strategist, is on the podcast to share her background, including growing up in the UK, being an Olympic hopeful swimmer, and during her first triathlon as a journalist reporting on the event. Today, we talk with her about her wealth of experience and how she's going to ensure our readers and listeners get even more diverse content from us. We're excited to have her on board. So, get ready for Trevor and EK to share a little British Commonwealth love, and let's make you fast. For both beginners and veterans, polarized training is the best way to get and stay fast year after year. And this is the perfect time of year to be thinking about how polarized training can help you. In our new guide featuring Dr. Steven Seiler, explore fascinating and helpful topics like how polarized training is different from sweet spot, how to bust out of performance plateaus, how to polarize all season, how to build durability, and how to time your high-intensity work. With the complete guide from Fast Talk Labs, you'll have everything you need to polarize your training like a pro and unlock your elite. Learn more at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, I don't know if we should be calling you a guest or calling you a host or what, but Emma Kate, welcome to the show. I know we had you a few weeks ago, but this is our official welcome to the team. Welcome to the show. You are part of the team. How does it feel? Thank you. Thanks for the welcome. Is this my initiation? Do I get my eyebrows at the end of this? <laughs> you do, in <laughs> fact. And I, I think you're actually the backbone. I don't. She's not a guest. She's like the backbone of Whoa. Fast Talk Labs at this point. But I think we're going to talk about that more as we get into it. I know she's ready to go because it's 1030 and she's on her third cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, watch out. Sorry about that. I'm usually the coffee fanatic, but it's just, just one. I don't even know if I'd call it a latte this morning. I was in a rush. Well, that's my third black coffee of the morning, so... Watch out. I am on my first pot of tea, which means I'm going to have to pee at some point during this episode. (laughs) Is that just because tea and pee rhyme with each other? It's because it goes right through my system. It is Mm -hmm. amazing how fast it is. Are there aid stations in this show? Are there aid stations (laughs) in this show? (laughs) So if anybody was wondering, EK is a triathlete and uh, (laughs) is used to stuff like that, where, you know, us cyclists, we just keep all our aid on our bike and I guess we just whiz on our bike. Two. Yeah, well, that happens in Iron Man as well. Yeah. People pee themselves on the bike. Can't stop, won't stop? Mm-mm. Mm. No. Okay. Trevor, what are we talking about today? We are talking about EK. Oh, boy. That's a lot. We are introducing you <laughs> to our listeners. So I hope you're ready. I think so. What, what did we tell her we were going to talk about today? I think we told her we were talking about like training science or something. Awesome. My favorite. Yeah. Well, we never talk about that. So yeah. let's move on. <laughs> but, but it's really about her. And we have this beautiful background that starts with her childhood. <laughs> oh no, is it like once upon a time? Do you need, do you need to lay pond, back on five, a couch? 5,000 miles away. <laughs> 5,000 miles. Yes. Should we go all Commonwealth on, on Rob here? We should be playing the uh, national anthem. Can I, I was going to say God Save the Queen, but it should be God Save the King, of course, now. Yeah, you got to get uh, Are you having a hard time getting used to Careful that? Careful there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting until I go home at Christmas and see if they've changed the coins yet. The stamps and the coins, yeah, it's going to be... Wait, does all that stuff get changed? Of course. Yes. Oh, really? What happens to all the coins that are like in circulation? Uh, they get taken back. Yeah. 
You can actually in Canada somewhat tell how old the coins are by the age of the queen on it, because even as she was getting older, they, they changed her on the coins. This sounds like a waste of money. <laughs> Literally a waste of money. But OK, so what? You grew up in the E in the UK. I was going to say you grew up in the EK. But EK that's from your the name. UK. What is EK for everybody who's listening is, is Emma Kate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it started with two indecisive parents, or no, two stubborn parents who wouldn't, neither would compromise. My, I think it was my dad who wanted me to be called Kate and my mum wanted me to be called Emma or something. So, and they wouldn't, neither one of them would back down. So they just put a hyphen in between. And I've always been EK. I've never been an Emma. I was going to say, if you had to choose, would you choose the Emma or the Kate? No, I've just, just been always been EK. And that actually started with a swim coach when I was young who wouldn't call me Emma Kate. He would only call me EK. So then I was just, I've just been EK since I was about eight or nine. Very nice. Hmm. So we started swimming. That's that's what kicked off your athletic career, yes, I was your a love swimmer. of sport. Yeah, I was a swimmer. And so got used to doing the crazy like 5 a.m. swim practice before school and all the structure and dedication and commitment that comes with anybody who's, you know, had any level of involvement in competitive swimming knows that it's one of those sports where it requires a very much an all-in approach. And even from a young age, I was yeah at swim practice at 5 a.m. with very strict coaches. It's pretty incredible how regimented mm. every aspect of swimming is, I feel like, from how the workouts are structured to yeah. the times that you're swimming. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. And very much, especially in the 90s, so that was in the 90s, and that was very much that time when high, it was high volume was everything. So we were swimming a lot. And I, you know, little did I know at the time that I was sort of building this, <laughs> little EK was just building this huge aerobic engine, you know, aerobic endurance engine that would obviously help power me to lots of Ironman and half Ironman success later in life. But, you know, building this huge engine from the, from the time I was a little, little kid. Yeah. So I want to stay with you when you're swimming here. Was it that structure about swimming? Is that why you fell in love maybe with that sport first? Or did that just happen to be the sport that you got into when you were younger? I think that just happened to be the sport that I got into when I was younger. I mean, I played a lot of sports. I grew up in a very athletic family. So we were always, there was always something going on, but competitive swimming was the the sport that set me on fire, the, the sport that I was really like into and passionate about. And I specialized in the 50 and 100, sometimes 200 freestyle. So it was all very short. I was, yeah, that's a little different than yeah, what you ended like up in later in life. 27 seconds, 53. Okay. So, so um, yeah. Going my speed at that point. I mean, you were probably <laughs> going faster than I would have gone, let's be honest. But, but yeah, it's funny because then when I did get into triathlon later in, you know, in my 20s, like the thought of having to swim 750 meters or 1500 meters <laughs> was like, whoa, oh, that's a long huge. way. Yep. <laughs> so I love in the notes that you gave us, you said, always love the structure and commitment of swimming. And then your next line is burned out at 18. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very much, I think that's kind of typical of that era of swimming training. You know, like, like, like I said, high volume, high, high volume. But yeah, the classic kind of got to college, age 18, deliberately, specifically got into Loughborough University, which at the time produced 50% of the Great Britain Olympic swim team hmm. and deliberately went there in order to swim, but got there and then just like, discovered beer and the student newspaper and all those things. And I was yeah. like, here we go. And I didn't last much longer than the first semester on the swim team. So interesting, which, and rightly so, because they were, you know, they were swimmers of exceptionally high caliber and yeah. you had to be all in as any elite athlete has to be yeah. in order to be there and to earn your spot. And I was not that girl anymore. It sounds like the burnout that you were facing coming into this was more on the emotional, the mental level than, mm. than the physical level from all both, the training. Yeah. But yeah, but definitely just that also kind of that rite of passage of going, moving away from home and going to college and being yeah. like, woohoo, I can do whatever I want. I don't right. have to set my alarm for 4.45 anymore. Yeah. 
So so you lost this sort of sporting thread for a little bit of yeah, time. You yeah. discover some other loves. Yeah. How yeah. did you end up back in the sporting and the endurance and the competitive world? What what yeah. change occurred that allowed you to get back into it? Well, I'd always had an interest in journalism from the time I was, again, from the time I was a little girl. Always loved reading newspapers. Used to sort of stand over my dad as he was sitting in the kitchen reading. He would be pouring over all the newspapers every every morning and I would just be looking over his shoulder, being, like, reading <laughs> all the stories. And so that's where my love for news and journalism started. And like I said, when I was an undergrad, I got involved in a student newspaper and then went on to grad school and trained to be a journalist. And it was on the second newsroom I worked in, in Oxford, England, where the editor-in-chief knew that I had a competitive swimming background as a kid. And it was also around the time where triathlon was starting to take off. Mm. This was 2004, 2005 in the UK. And they were looking for a journalist to take part, like to, to do like a first person assignment, train mm. and take part in the triathlon. They were there was a big triathlon taking place that was uh, actually being launched by the same guys that started the London Triathlon, which was a huge, 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 huge race. And so basically, they were looking for a journalist to be like this first person. We'll throw you in. You can be a face in the race. And based on this status of most of the journalists in the newsroom I was working on, I was pretty much the only one that was going to survive it. <laughs> the likely candidate, yeah, love it, without being too much but, of a liability to the uh, to the company there. So that's how, so yeah, so aged 18, you know, arrived at college and didn't really do a whole lot of sport, even though I'd grown up my entire life with the structure of sport. Then kind of until the age of 25, didn't do a whole lot of anything much until I then get thrown into this race as a newspaper journalist. So how did that first race go for you? Oh, my goodness. Because I'm assuming you were not coached or prepared in any way. (laughs) I wasn't coached. And what's really funny is, I mean, this is long before I knew anything about training peaks, obviously. So I used to write down my training in um, my journal. And I used to do about six hours a week Uh in preparation for this first race. So that first race actually was like terrifying. It was equal parts terrifying and entirely exhilarating. And I mean, crossing the finish line of that race, I just got the tri bug in a major, major way. Like I was like, holy, like this is, is kind of like a renaissance, you know, if you like, you know, this little girl who had always known competitive sport and structure and training and commitment and discipline and all these things, all of that was reawoken in me. And at the same time, I just achieved something that I wasn't actually sure I'd be able to do. You know, because I knew I was a good swimmer. I'd never really ridden a bike much before, apart from I did have a little BMX when I was a kid. And I mean, I could run to catch a bus, but that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there I am at this triathlon and I, and I crossed the line and it's my very first one and I just love it. And there's so many things happening on so many levels and it just kind of captured me, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned something in here and it was achievement and that was really big for you in this triathlon. And I feel as though for some reason, and, and I don't know that I quite understand it because triathlon has never been my major you know, sport. I have done a few, but achievement seems to be a really big motivator for why people get into triathlon. Yeah, Everybody has different goals or purpose with why they're racing or engaging with things, but triathlon more so than bike racing, achievement really seems to be a, a big driver for people which I think is interesting because do you think that that fueled kind of a very rapid rise in triathlon? It, it grew really quickly from the time that you're talking about the beginning yeah, of triathlon yeah, here. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think there's something in there that regardless of the level you're competing at, whether it's your first one or your 50th, there's always a uh, scope for improvement. Mm. And we all come into it with 
most everybody who does a triathlon comes into it with a weakness and a strength. And so there's always, and I think that's kind of what makes it a little bit addictive or, you know, people talk about getting the tri bug. And I think that's because you can see the potential for improvement in a certain one or two or maybe all three sports. Mm. And so then it's like you're hooked. You, you just want to keep getting better. You want to keep seeing how much more time you can take off or how fast you can get. And so I think that's what drives that kind of achievement angle. And it's yeah. very personal. It's, you know, you don't really even need to be competing against anybody else. It's right. again, you're competing against yourself. So I think that's what a lot of people really love about it and why a lot of people, you know, catch the tri bug, as they say. So what happened after this race? And it sounds like you, they sent you to an event that kind of made them lose a journalist. Ultimately, yes, because three years later, I walked into my editor-in-chief's office and gave him my resignation letter. And he was like, whoa, what's, what's going on? But yeah, to answer your question, I... Yeah, just I fell in love with the sport and I was very fortunate. I think sometimes it's um, good fortune. You know, there's an element of luck in a lot of people's journeys. I was living in Oxford and I had a bunch of roommates who are all very uh, athletic. One or two of them were, had done a lot of triathlon. I got introduced to the coach and a few people at Oxford Tri Club, which was this really warm and welcoming team. And I just started going along to their swim workouts and I started going along to some of their runs. And that's one of the things I also just loved about triathlon was how inclusive and welcoming mm. it was. Mm. And everybody wanted to share their knowledge, which is something, you know, to this day, is something that I still really enjoy about triathlon. And one of the big reasons why I love producing content is you continue to help share your knowledge and help other people improve. So, yeah, I kind of got into Oxford Tri Club, made some great friends there, and then just went along to their first training camp that winter took two weeks off work from the newsroom, went to this training camp and just did really funny stuff. Like I had to learn to clip into pedals on the bike and um, just very sharp, sharp learning curve, but also a huge rise in fitness. Obviously at that stage, when you're going from training six hours a week to then doing like 10 or 12 and it's more structured and you've got people who are writing workouts for you or you're jumping into other people's workouts, like obviously the rise is pretty quick quick, sharp rise in fitness and improvements you're seeing all the time. So Yeah, we know that you eventually turn pro. We know that that's where yeah. this story is going. What I'm interested in, though, is at this point in time, you've done your first triathlon. Mm -hmm. You might not be a triathlete yet, but you've at least yeah. done a triathlon. How quickly was your development as an athlete? We know that you have the ability to go pro, to be one of the absolute best in the world, did you, though, have a steady rise in fitness where you kind of climbed up through the rankings? Or, you know, once you started training seriously, were you automatically winning local races and you had this very, very, like, obviously, like, EK was going to be a pro triathlete from day one? Well, it's funny, as you just started talking then, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I got plantar fasciitis in both feet. I did increase Runner my training. Problems, yeah. yeah, yeah. As a swimmer, you know, like going and running and increasing my run volume a lot. Like, yeah, just got injured in that first couple of years quite a bit. But yeah, the rise was sh like the, the improvement was was sharp, like mm. very fast. And I was just hanging out with, yeah, just got kind of got in with this group of guys who, I think between them they used to go and race Ironman all over the world. They probably raced three or four or five Ironmans each of them around the world every every season. And I just used to go and train with them. And I learned how to ride a bike based on just sitting at the back of the pack. Right. And when they drank, I drank. When yeah. they changed gear, I changed gear. When they leaned the bike, I leaned the bike. And we did these, you know, big training camps in places like Lanzarote, which are notoriously windy and hilly and hot. So, you know, it just learned a lot. And you're yeah. just like a sponge. I used to, just to like watch them and copy. Yeah. 
because cycling was the sport that I was the newest to. But the fitness, I guess I, I re- there was already an athlete in there, right, who as a young girl, I'd spent hours and hours and hours in the pool. So there was an athlete in there. It was just like a case of waking her up and bringing her back around and learning some skills. <laughs> now, do you feel some of that fitness that you developed as a kid carried I th- over? I think so. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't think you can spend that long in the pool. You know, I definitely built an engine, cardiovascular engine that paid dividends late in my 20s and 30s for sure. I think that foundation with the highly structured swim training also yeah. could have taught you how to train, taught yep. you how to be committed. Yep. And the psychological side of it too, you know, I was very fortunate to have some really good coaches as a swimmer who taught a lot about focus and discipline and commitment and motivation and all those things that you needed in order to succeed. Mm-hmm. Some of which are obviously just inherent in, in competitive people, but other ones have to be learned and nurtured. So yeah. also sounds like you've always been very driven. And you yeah. love the competition, you, lo- you love the, the self-improvement, and yep. it sounds like you had that in swimming. Yeah. And then when you discovered triathlon, it, it brought back. Yeah, it definitely did. And I think I'd had that hiatus you know, between ages of 18 and 25 where I'd got all of my partying done and all of, well, most of it. Um, uh, uh. <laughs> um, so I was, re- age 25, I was ready to like dive back into this, into that structure that I'd known almost all my life. And that's definitely what success in triathlon demanded, you know. Yeah, I definitely think this is a case against early specialization in sport, you know. That's yeah. something that's a topic that's talked yeah. about a lot. Yeah. You were able to achieve this success without training steadily from the time that you were just a, a wee little one. Mm-hmm. So you race professionally for 10 years. What would you say were some of the highlights of your career? I think 2011 through 2013, 14 was when I really started seeing big success racing the half Ironman distance, 70.3, uh, which refers to the number, total number of miles you cover across swim, bike and run. And I think it was the 2011 season where I won 70.3 Mallorca, 70.3 Augusta in Georgia, 70.3 UK. And so just, I think what a lot of people forget is when you go from amateur to professional, for most people, the changes don't happen overnight, right? Mm-hmm. There is a there is a chasm, there is a gulf between what amateurs do and what successful professionals do. And so I think naively, it's very easy for people to think that they'll give up work, quote unquote work, and they'll suddenly become professional, you know, successful professional triathletes. I think in that gap between sort of 2009, 2010 until... 2011, 2012, I was learning how to be a professional athlete. Mm. And the extra time in my schedule from not being in the newsroom was being put into recovery or smarter training. But really, I think a highlight of that decade of professional racing for me was obviously the wins. You know, I won six Ironman 70.3 titles. I did well at the World Championships a few times. Really loved stepping up to racing full Ironman. My first Ironman was in Mallorca, Spain. And finish second there. But also like the things that you learn, the people that you create friendships and bonds with that will last a lifetime, they'll last well beyond the 10 years that I was racing. And all the experience and, and expertise and insight that you gain that you don't realize you're even gaining at the time. But um, it's only since retiring and writing about triathlon and endurance sports, you realize how much you know and how good it is to share that with people. Yeah, certainly. EK, it sounds like you were traveling the world right? Yeah. You're racing in all of these absolutely beautiful places. Mm-hmm. You're from the UK, which as I listen to you and hear Oxford and everything else, I'm having these beautiful pictures and wishing I was there. But you ended up here in the US during your career. How how did that happen? 
Yeah. So I had spent a lot of time here racing because really from the point of view of long distance triathlon, North America is really kind of like the epicenter of, of triathlon racing. And I was still based in the UK in Oxford. And I started working with Matt Dixon of Purple Patch, who was based in California, San Francisco, California. And obviously having your coach be eight hours behind you is not <laughs> ideal You know, yes. when you're making day to day, hour to hour changes in things. And I was spending, you know, as a without having to have any kind of visa, you could spend 90 days in the US, you know, as a as a Brit. And I would come over, I would often come over and spend those three months in the summer racing on the 70.3 circuit and, you know, just bounce around the US and do different races. And it was immediately obvious that if you wanted to get better sponsorship, if you wanted to just be, you know, if it doesn't happen in North America, it doesn't happen when it comes mm. to long long course triathlon. Sure. And so Matt and I had a big conversation. I think we were, we were, yeah, we were in Kona. Watch, I was watching the race at the end of 2012 and he said to me, you know, I think it would be really good if you could move to the US and you, you know, you, you came over to California. And I was like, you mean move, move? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I mean move, move. And so at the time, you know, I had a long-term boyfriend. We had a house together. We had a cat together. I was very close to my family, had a very tight, still very um, embedded in Oxford Tri Club all these years. So, you know, I was an athlete with a community around me mm -hmm. and a support network. So the thought of moving to California was like kind of exciting, but also kind of terrifying. But also a big lesson, you know, a lesson that I learned from that was like, take chances when they're right. Make opportunities work for you when they're the right ones. Jump, you know, sometimes you have to jump and not figure out how you're going to land until you're flying and mm -hmm. you find out who the best people are for you and your team, you know, who your teammates are, if you like, after you've taken off. So um, January 2013, I'm sat on the runway at London Heathrow and I'm on a flight to LA. Yeah, we're about to take off a flight to LAX and this and that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the UK and I'm left that life behind, I guess, and moved to the States, moved to LA. And really, it was like a career development move, I guess, mm. you know, like it was yeah. a, I want to win races here. I want, I want to get, pick up better sponsorship here in much the same way that anybody who is trying to advance in their career, whether they were, you know, whether you're a banker or a lawyer or whatever you are. And I think that's a really valid point, right? Because you're facing this and, and it's an athlete. Everybody out there right now is saying, yeah, I had this point in my career too, or you're going to face it if you haven't had it yet. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing how transferable that leap is across everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I did. How long did it take you to make that choice? Was it very quick or did you really have to think about it for a while? To make the decision to move to the, yeah. to the States? I think it was one of those decisions that was kind of already made in, for me, I already I already knew, like the dream was so alive for me, like I really wanted to try and be the best athlete I could be. So the answer was there, but sometimes, you know, like there's some, there's some resistance. It took me, so I'd say it probably took me like six or eight weeks. My youngest sister reminds me that we had many long drawn out conversations about the pros and the cons. Mm. And the, when she hears me telling the story now of like, oh yeah. And then I decided I'd move to the US. It seems so easy. And she was <laughs> like, um, do you remember how many cups of tea that involved? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was obviously like, it's a big, it was a big decision because I moved solo. I, uh, you know, my boyfriend and I broke up and Did I- you take the cat? No, oh. I, no. Oh, the poor I'm, cat. I left everything. Wow. Did the boyfriend get the cat? <laughs> he did, yeah. So it was a big decision. So I, I didn't make it lightly, but ever since it's always been, I guess it's been like a guiding light in subsequent big decisions. I've always been like, hey, yeah. does this feel right? Yeah. Is this the right move for you? So when I moved from upstate New York to go train at the National Center in British Columbia, so across the continent, 
I basically got the invite to come and train there and was told I had two weeks. So very rapidly made the decision. Didn't really have time to, to work on that because I had to figure out how to get out of my apartment, how to move, all that. So it wasn't until there that I, I finally had the, oh my God, what did I just do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And had yeah. to process it there. And in some ways that made it easier mm. if I'd had a lot of time to think about it and how much it was going to upend my life. Mm. I think it would have been tougher. That's why I was asking if it was a very quick thing and, and you processed it when you got here or if you... You had that time to think about it. No, I definitely had time to think about it. But I think also there are some things that you just know, right? Yeah. That you know that you want to go do. I knew that I didn't want to be looking back, you know, on my life in years and years to come and be like, oh, I could have, I could have gone and been a professional triathlete in America, but I didn't. I stayed, I stayed home. Mm-hmm. And it's like, bummer. No, yeah, I don't want to that do that. Stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I'd always rather go try something and go do it and go take the leap and see what happens than yeah. not. And you had that allure of California, right? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the big reasons why I was keen to, I was ready to leave the UK. I had done so many like four hour bike rides in the rain in December. There's only so many miles you can do like that where you're so wet and so cold and so miserable. Right. So when I moved to California, especially LA, obviously in January, it's like sunny and warm and 70 degrees and... The Californians, you know, 5 a.m. swim practice, the Californians are moaning because it's like 55 and it's like, wow, <laughs> yeah. you guys are soft. This is funny. I'm, I'm picturing you like walking down the street with the Hollywood sign behind you <laughs> and just like living this amazing new American life and being a, it was a pro super athlete. Cool. I loved it. I stayed in, I didn't intend to stay in LA as long as I did, but I stayed there three, yeah, almost four years. So did that bring you, how deep into your triathlon career was that? Is that Kind of where your triathlon career is ending or were you still No, that competing? was 2013. Okay. So, I, yeah, I was still racing for another five years. Okay. So. so then you came to Colorado? Yeah. I Well, for the most part, I was in LA. I spent six months or so up in San Francisco when Matt was sort of building out the Purple Patch team there. And then back in LA, a very good friend of mine, Rachel Joyce, was um, a, another British triathlete. She was based here. Her and her partner were based here. And she was like, hey, just come... I think it was in the build-up to one of the world championships. She was like, hey, come see what Boulder's about, Yeah, which I did. And then I was like, wow, this place is unreal. <laughs> and I, at that point, I was kind of getting tired of, as much as I loved LA and California, I was also getting tired of traffic and, yep. and that craziness. And so I was staying with Rachel, and the very first weekend I was here, I can remember it used to take me like seven minutes to get from like her house to the pool or seven minutes to the grocery store. And I was like, whoa, Mm -hmm. okay, you don't have to spend two hours in the car. And I can train with some of the best triathletes in the world. And it's amazingly beautiful. And so within the space of, I think, like three days, I decided I was just going to move to Boulder. There you go. I really, I think it was, it was 63rd and 75th, you know, two popular training (laughs) roads out there. I think that's really what drew you in. Yeah. Those two roads are what make Boulder special in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, I miss the ocean, but the mountain, I love being here and it's it's always just felt like home. Yeah. I've been that was 2016, so I've been here ever since. Ah, uh, November. The air is crisp, the leaves are falling, and I get to take a break from riding my bike. Now is a great time of year to rest and reflect on the past season. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways.
All right. So take us to now. It sounds like you had a couple more years and you retired and you moved on to Palms. Tell us about it. Yeah, I retired from racing in 2018. I'd always said that I would continue racing triathlon for as long as I was enjoying it and I was healthy, fit and well and and making money. Hmm. And so some of those things stopped happening a little bit. At the same time, the creative in me, you know, the writer in me was really kind of yearning for an outlet that I hadn't had when I'd been racing. And I'd started to write again a little bit. And um, it was at that time when I'd been in L.A., I'd been coached by Jerry Rodriguez, the swim, triathlon swim coach at Tower 26. Jerry had become a good friend and mentor as, you know, some coach athlete relationships developed that way. And Jerry and I have been really good friends and he told me, like, oh, I'm talking to Velo Press about writing my book. I want to write a book on triathlon swimming. But he didn't want to write it, write it. He wanted to have a ghostwriter. And so so I went along to Velo Press and met the team there and ultimately got that job to write Jerry's book. So that was really kind of how I segued back into, you know, I guess, yeah, quite a nice cycle there of like stepping from journalism into racing, into triathlon and racing. And then sort of stepping, very fortunately, stepping away from racing and back into journalism and media. It's quite serendipitous, in fact, how you literally were handed off in both directions at the beginning and the end of your career. And also, I didn't really appreciate at the time, and I definitely do now, seeing how some of my peers from those racing days have really struggled to find what they want to do next. Mm -hmm. And so I was thrown into this uh, book project, and like the writer in me was in very much the same way that if you don't train very often, very consistently, then you struggle as an athlete or, you know, as we know from physiology, you don't don't use it, you lose it. The same thing happens when you're writing. And so those first few weeks sitting down at the kitchen table to like start scheduling how Jerry's book was going to work, what our writing process was going to be like, and then, you know, turning in the first chapter to Velo Press, I was like, oh boy, okay. And was this your first book? I mean, yes, it sounds like yeah. before you were more in the newspaper world. Yeah, I was very much a, little a journalist. Here. Yeah. yeah, I'd always worked for daily newspapers. So I'd always had the deadline, you know, like the, the late afternoon deadline that we always used to work to on daily, on daily newspapers. So this was very different and you had like a lot of free reign. It was also very interesting from a coach athlete point of view, Jerry had always been the boss, right? This very larger than life charismatic coach who is you know, so well respected by all of his athletes and really just a very strong paternal figure. But here I was for the very first time having to give Jerry mm. the the rules and the deadlines. And so that was really interesting. Yeah, so Jerry and I began working on the book project together and that then ultimately led me to Triathlete Magazine because uh, Triathlete was part of Pocket Outdoor Media, then also part of, so Velo Press and Triathlete, part of the same family. And when the book project was coming to an end, I was very much like, oh, I really want to stay in this world. I asked fellow press if there were any jobs going, which there weren't, but they were like, ah, but triathletes looking for a managing editor. Mm. So I jumped over there and worked there for three years and really discovered, yeah, like I said earlier, you you really discover how much you've learned and how much you know and how much expertise you have, which as a pro athlete, you just take for granted because you're in that world, you're embedded in it. And it was really only then... And also, yeah, to kind of, kind of to speak to the point I made earlier about triathlon, when I first got into triathlon, I was just blown away at how warm and welcoming and inclusive it was and how everybody just wanted to teach you what they knew. And so as a content creator, as a journalist, as a writer, that's always a big part of why I love doing what I do because now I'm in a position as the person who showed up to a tri- my first triathlon in 2005 and knew very little about the sport. There were a lot of people who kind of 
taught me a lot. Mm. And so now it's kind of very serendipitous, if you like, to be in a position to continue helping other people learn more about how to get the most from their sports, whether it's triathlon or swimming, running, cycling, whatever it might be. Yeah. And that's just what I love doing and feel very fortunate to have been able to step into this world from the world I was in. Well, I think that you're right in that you were fully immersed for a long time. And we know that that full immersion is hugely important for learning a new language or mm -hmm. for you in the beginning of your career, learning how to ride a bike. Yeah. You learned all of the things you needed to just by being immersed there. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, or I know, I shouldn't say I'm sure, I know that there's just this wealth of knowledge that you've been able to gain yeah. you know, throughout the years. And so, I mean, I, I love the fact that you're here with us now and able to share that with people. And for me, it's been interesting to watch how media has been changing yeah. and maybe how some traditional forms of media are, are struggling in this day and age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming over here into the fast talk side and doing things more digitally and online content and mm -hmm. everything else, you know, I, I think that that's really interesting and we're super fortunate to be able to, to have that. So going back to your comment about uh, making big decisions in life mm -hmm. that go horribly wrong, you joined us. <laughs> So yeah. Tell us about coming into, over to Fast Talk Labs. I bumped into Rob Pickles in, on Pearl Street one day. I bought her a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sealed the deal right there. She just never went home. Hey, Boulder, yeah, Boulder coffee is expensive, so she knew how committed I was. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah. Ozo coffee. There you go. <laughs> boxcar. Oh, boxcar. That was uh, it. Yeah. You don't even remember Sorry. our first... I don't remember our first date. Oh, God. <laughs> it's okay. My wife doesn't remember it either. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I I already knew about you guys. I um, how did I know about you? I think one of your newsletters landed in my inbox mm, somehow. We infected Dave you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, these what are these guys doing? I was impressed with the number of experts you had who were contributing. I was like, oh, these guys seem serious. Yeah, you piqued my interest. That was probably early in 2022. I'd first noticed you and just signed up for your newsletter and then just kept getting spammed all the time. <laughs> Constantly. Oh, God. <laughs> so We lame. wore her down. It actually worked, right? Yeah, and, and for everybody moving forward who gets spammed by that newsletter, EK is the one that writes it. So <laughs> it's come full circle in pretty much all aspects of her life. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Yeah, so, no, I, I guess I was interested in what you're doing. I think the future of media, I mean, as we know, like, digital media is in a very interesting space right now. Yeah. And the future of media, I think, is already niche and is going to become even more niche. And um, I could see that Fast Talk was definitely leaning into a niche. <laughs> but yeah, just interested to see what you're doing and, and what the future plans and direction were. And here I am. Well, and I think that that's something that's very interesting about media in this day and age mm -hmm. is, you know, Fast Talk is pretty niche, but at the same time, we're able to pivot and we're able to listen to our consumers. We're able to change our content. And mm -hmm. we've been in involving more triathlon. Emma Kate has infected us just like <laughs> we infected her. And I think that that's really powerful at this point in time. And in this building, we have such a wide range of individuals with individual experiences and expertise. And us being able to leverage that, I think, is really, really terrific. Yeah, you know, obviously I could see the cycling influence and the cycling focus at Fast Talk. You know, I knew you guys were already keen to expand that and expand horizons. And so sort of stepping into triathlon, but not just triathlon, like trail running, ultra running, yep. adventures, if you yep, like. You know, exactly. so that there's, 
there's obviously you know a large part of the fast talk audience who are key who are serious about their training training science physiology nutrition recovery etc cetera, etc cetera. they're training to win or they're training to to pr but there's also a lot of people out there who are just looking for their next adventure and they want to be fit and they want to enjoy it all yeah and they get, they want to get the most from it and there's also people who are you know and i think a lot of triathletes are this like lifestyle oriented you know like your training is part and parcel of a overall healthy well life and it might not be anything to do with beating your buddy or beating any competitors on race day it's about improving you know it's, it's like i said about that first triathlon of mine you know it's, it's about how do you get better how do you improve your swim or how do you improve your bike how do you improve your run and so i think you know there's whether you are here to win, whether you're here to just achieve, whether you're here to explore, like we, we're looking to create content that will help you do all those things. So to put you on the spot a little bit, because I'm really interested, what are you most excited about? What do you see happening that you really want to put your stamp on? Oh, I don't know. At the moment, we're focusing on improving the website and building out that and increasing the membership, you know, like really creating, having people see and feel the community that we're trying to build. And the membership component of that, obviously, like paywalls have been a kind of a controversial topic in digital media. But I do believe that premium content, if you, know, if you create it and you're giving people the value and they can see the value and they can and they can gain from it, then they see the value in joining. They see the value in becoming part of the community. They they see that they can learn and they can they see that they can grow and they can benefit from the expertise that from the content that we're creating. So I'm, I guess I'm most excited about building that out and hopefully increasing our community, increasing the number of people who consider themselves to be Fast Talk members, consider themselves to be part of the Fast Talk community. Yeah, I think that that's a really important aspect to this. Science, you know, gosh, research journals and whatever else where people are able to get this information, everything is so locked down. Mm -hmm. And the democratization of information at this point has become so important and I think that those are important changes that we're going through with Fast Talk Labs, mm-hmm. making this podcast available to everyone, relooking at our content and how we're distributing that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the listeners, you need to know that we have a lot of changes that are sort of brewing up in the background right now. And I, for yeah. one, can't wait to, to make all of that stuff live. And I came from a world of really long lead times making apparel in the cycling industry. And um, man, I'm still struggling with that now, right? Because you just want it in front of people. You just yeah. want to be able to show them this really awesome thing that you're that you're working on. Yeah. And um, you know, your insight has been hugely integral in into doing that. Yeah, and I think you know, like all of us come from different. We come from different sports, different backgrounds. But I think one of the things that unites everybody is whether it's in the pool at 5 a.m. or whether it's out on a group ride, gravel ride on a Sunday morning or whatever it might be. Like, there's that camaraderie and there's that community and there's that bond and there's that trust that comes from people doing sports together, training, like racing, re- trying to reach a goal together. Yep. And that's and that community and that connection is what keeps people coming back. And it's it's that that I really want to build into Fast Talk. And I think that's where we'll have people want to come be part of the community and be like, oh, I get that you guys are doing something more than just creating content. You're trying to help me get the best out of my sport and my adventures and, and, my, and my performance. So I think that's really, that's really a big part of it for me. And to that point of having it seen by as many people as possible, I love the changes that you've made on social media where we're giving people some more actionable advice, even just in our social feeds. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the other side of this is in the future, you know, look to this maybe in the beginning of the new year. I don't know that we have a specific date. We're going to be moving away from a completely locked down website, which is what we have right now, that you have to have a membership to view any of our content. Mm -hmm. 
we're going to be moving that so that people are able to view a significant amount of that kind of in a metered system. Obviously, you know, I hate to say it, but the truth of the matter is we're, we're a business. We do need membership to survive, but we are going to be opening things up so that people can view and take in that content and they're able to learn and to read and to watch at their own pace. And uh, that's going to be a huge, huge change for us moving forward that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think that's going to be great. I think historically the internet has always been free and changing those habits, changing consumers' habits and changing consumers' expectations about what's free, what you have to pay for, is obviously a, a process that you know, takes time. Some people are more willing to open their wallets than others. But I think there's an exchange there. If we're expecting somebody to pay for our content, it has to be premium content. Mm. It has to be good. And so there has to be an element of, you know, you're, you're going to learn something. We're going to give you something that is of value to you. We wouldn't ask you to pay for it otherwise. And it'll help you be a better athlete. It'll help you be a, a better informed coach. And as part of that, you're part of the Fast Talk community. You're part of, you know, you're part of what we're trying to build and, and grow. And hopefully people see that. So we do, I do want there to be premium content out there that you can consume at Fast Talk. And it'll help, hopefully help you achieve your, you know, whatever your goals might be. And so, yeah, there will be changes coming early in the, the new year. Yeah. So, yeah, which I think we're all excited about. Yeah, the other thing that I'm really excited about is uh, we're re-exploring the user experience of our website, the journey that people go through. We're reassessing that through the eyes of these updated athlete and coach personas that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that is going to be key to people enjoying the premium side of this content. Yeah. Uh, and I really think it's going to elevate that experience. So, yeah, I know I'm, you know, I've, gosh, I wish it was January already. I don't want to fast forward through Christmas uh, or, <laughs> or Thanksgiving, but a big part of me does wish it, it was January tomorrow. Thanksgiving was a month ago. Get over it. No, God. Do you even have turkeys in Canada? Yes. Americans come up all the time. Do they? But I'm bump. Dad jokes free. Dad jokes aren't <laughs> premium content at Fast Talk. <laughs> wow, you won't she's get charged. on the episode once and she's already getting on You won't on me. get charged for that. <laughs> well, Emma Kate, to, to finish things out here, you have been an athlete at the highest level. You've made a career of helping athletes, sharing good information with them. So I don't think this would be a complete episode without saying what are some wisdoms you could share with all of our listeners, advice, suggestions, things you've learned the hard way? Oh, golly. Wow. There's a lot there. I would say, I think, you know, staying true to, to the roots of why you do what you do. I think, you know, now I'm retired from triathlon. I, I haven't actually raced triathlon uh, since 2018, but it's interesting to, to me to see what I almost to like watch what I am doing, you know, like I love trail running now and every weekend on a Sunday morning, I'll always go out, I almost always go out for like a two or so hour trail run. And so I think finding what you love and keep doing that. And I never take for granted the fact that I can, I get to like swim, bike or run or lift weights or whatever your favorite activity might be. So I think really leaning into doing what you enjoy doing, staying fit and well. I think ever since I've been a little girl, I've always enjoyed the fact that we get to move our bodies and that's what the human body is designed to do. It's designed to move and explore. And so I just, I just love keeping on doing that. And so even though I'm not sort of swimming, biking and running miles and miles and miles every week, I still just love doing the things that make me happy. So I would say do that, whatever your thing is, do it and, and do it to the best of your ability. Great. 
Well, I'm Kate. I'm glad we got you on the show. This certainly won't be the last time. We're, we're excited to have you be part of this. We're excited what you're bringing to the company. Can't wait to see all these changes that we're going to have in, in 2023. So I think with that, Rob, you want to take us out? That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual, especially EK. Hers are crazy. <laughs> As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com or tweet us at, at @fasttalklabs. Head to fasttalklabs.com to get access to our endurance sports knowledge base, coach continue education, as well as our in-person and remote athlete services. For EK Lidberry, who really isn't crazy, she's pretty awesome, <laughs> and Trevor Connor, who's Canadian, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.